0: Romumu.org For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. So we begin the fifth and final of the five books in Moshe. This is the beginning of the book of Varim. And Varim, or Deuteronomy as known, is um, decidedly a different book than all the other books that came before Books of Moshe, five books of Moshe, we're told that the. I um, just wanted to just make sure our friends who are sitting in the front area, that's great, but there are people who are watching, so let's try to move around. It's a very different book. In many ways, it has a different name. It's called Mishneh Torah, the second given Torah. Deuteronomy, Duto, meaning 2. Right? Nomos, the second law. But as Moshe, seems to go over so much material that came before. But with significant changes, we'll talk about that in a moment. But what's remarkable at the beginning of the book, which we're not going to read, what's remarkable at the beginning of the book, Elah, the garden, Moshe, of course, and we say this every year, is that Moses is the one who said about himself that very word that becomes the word that, that is the name of the entire book, Divari, words. It's the, it's the second word in the first verse, Even These are the divari, which becomes the name of the book. That word for words, the word divarim, for words, divarim, is the very thing that Moses says by himself, I don't have. Moses said to God, I'm not a man of words, and then of course the man who is the man of words becomes the one who is the man of words. Right? The Moses who says about himself, Oh, who me? No, I don't have that. That's what I don't have. Becomes the one who in the final of the five books made for the man without words is the title of the book is words. Right? He seems to have found his voice, <clears throat> a voice that was uh, very much unassured. When we first meet Moses, he's not a man of words in the beginning, he's a man of action in the beginning of his career. When Moses is introduced to us in the second chapter of the book of Exodus, Moses is introduced as the one who is who grows up in a house of royalty. He's spared somehow the suffering that his brothers and sisters have to endure. It's somehow the opposite of a typical mythic structure where there's a slave where there's a, a king overcome as a pauper and as a kind of king or a prince in disguise. This is a slave in disguise. Moses is saved the suffering of his brother and sisters, and he takes an action. And from this action, so many things occur. He's just so courageous right at the beginning. And then he's afraid, and then he's courageous, and he's afraid. And his words come to him, and then there are words that are given to him by God. And then Aaron is the one who speaks for him. And then we find him using words that are uplifting, and then there are words that he uses that are inappropriate, that he speaks to the people and calls them rebels and says mean things to them, and then he gets angry at them, and then he says lofty things again. His whole speech pattern is just really remarkable just to watch. But of course the most important moment of speech for Moses is when he doesn't speak. He's told to speak to the rock, and instead of speaking to the rock, he kicks them. Right? God says to use your words, the words that you're learning to use, that will be your portal into the land. And he does this. And so he begins the book that will itself be all of it, an oratory of warning. Moses will come to the people in the fifth book of the five books of Moses as they are about to enter the land. They aren't the ones who were barred from the land, but indeed these are the ones that will enter the land. And he says to them, let me remind you that history repeats itself. And if you're not careful, you might not make it to the land the I didn't make it to the land. He says, be careful. And so essentially, Moses will begin to talk to the people, and then, as I said earlier, he will retell stories. And what's remarkable about Moses' retelling of stories is, of course, we read them, he retells some stories very um, with great accuracy and, and a great uh, loyalty to the text. But there aren't many stories that he tells with very different valence Right, with considerable right. license tells the stories. And that alone is great is Torah. We can stop here for a moment and say that the, the Jewish people gave the world something. And who knows if we gave it, But we think that we gave it. And others are given if you gave but But something very profound about our tradition is the tradition of interpretation. Right? The interpretation of the Torah is considered to be equal, if not greater, maybe greater, than the Torah itself. There are very few traditions where the rabbis or the sages of that tradition playfully change God's word. Or I should say, prayfully. They prayfully change God's word. And in that way, when we talk about sacred literature or foundational documents, and how they evolve. We have, to some degree, within our tradition, the precursor of what we in our country suffer with, and struggle with all the time, which is, how do we both venerate a founding document, and still read it as relevant? Or what does the Torah mean to me? We just saw the broader play, what the Constitution means to me. What does the Constitution, what does the Torah mean how do we make meaning of a text? And Moses, the great prophet, is the first one in his telling the stories, he retells them in a way that changes them significantly and importantly. The first story they tell, of course, the story of the spies. <clears> he <throat> tells the people, you know, as I spoke about last night, remember, not you, but remember, it says you, but it wasn't that, it was their parents. Remember. That how you came and you wanted spies. Which wasn't the story, right? The story was that God said, send them. Right? And Moses changes that. He says, oh, remember that you wanted spies. And then Moses adds a number of other pieces. But one of the most important ones, which I mentioned last night, is that he said to them, the truth is, you didn't want to go out to the land words, let's cut through all of the, you know, the stuff. Let's cut through the, the, the doubt and that you shouldn't listen to them when the 12 spies came back and 10 of them said it wasn't a great place. Let's look at the deeper motivation. It's not you excuses. Those are kind of confirmation bias. You already didn't want to go out, Moses says. He added that. Doesn't say anywhere in the text that they didn't want to go out to the land. Looks like they were pretty excited. In a moment, just for a moment here, he was naming that a man sees what he wants to see and disregards the rest. Right? You wanted not to go in, and you're just looking for excuses. And when the spies came back and told you, indeed, it's going to be terrifying. You're like, you see, we don't have to go up. And for us, in this moment, we can ask ourselves, on so many levels, but, but, you know, I'll let you do the individual, personal level, but I spoke about that last night. But what I did say last night which was, I think I could I think it's was applied at least, is that there's a nation that, that benefits us white people really want to undo that system of oppression. I mean, it's really good, isn't it? It's, it you
1: know,
0: we're living large. Right? Politicians live large, all the people in power live large. It takes a lot of courage. And honesty and even terror management. Mm-hmm. And to be able to be really able to see the kinds of changes that will disrupt all of us, systemically, nationally. Like, really, if Moses were living today, he'd kind of say this and say, you know, really want to get rid of the guns. Do you mm-hmm. like and, like, and then it's kind of an interesting way to hang your hat on it, but really, let's have a real conversation. And we might say that about ourselves also, in other ways, that we are afraid to change as well. Like, really, as my teacher, I have a teacher in Israel, used to say that in every behavior, there's a rebach, there's a benefit, there's something that you um, uh, get paid. But what's what's the word? Gain, there's a gain. Right? Every behavior has a gain. And until you acknowledge that gain. Right? Trying to convince yourself to change that behavior a few times. So Roger Bader begins with that shift. And he says he didn't really want to go up, and there are other things that he says. In the second story that he tells in the party, he talks about his father-in-law, Dieter, about how I was overwhelmed. Right? I didn't know how to delegate appropriately, and my father in law came along and gave me that visit. But of course, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, he doesn't mention his father in law. And on one level, Rabbi Gilhammer, I think about five years ago, gave a beautiful talk about this, about how he doesn't mention his father in law's good advice. But on a positive level, how we might interpret that is that Moses acknowledged to himself finally what his father in law saw on the outside, and how many burned out people. Like, can finally admit that they themselves were overwhelmed without somebody from the outside saying, You are really overwhelmed. Like, first it was, you know, the story was his father told him he was overwhelmed. By the time Deuteronomy shows up, he retells the story he says, You know, I'm just going to own the fact that I was completely overwhelmed. Right? I was so young. It's a very beautiful rendering, you know, even as it lies over his father's contribution, which is still, of course, and I mention all of this because we're about to read chapter 2, verse 31. <coughs> Look in your machine, in your Red Bible, okay? page 994, on the bottom of the page. 994. Last verse on the page, on the bottom, it begins in English, and the Lord said to me, He v'v'ayuno e'benayimah, Re'ei, look. See. I have begun placing before you a tzichon b'het-artso. who is the king at that point, <coughs> along with Oak, they always go together like Abbott and Castello, it's Sichon and Oak. So begin the occupation, begin taking possession of the land. Right? Moses is now at the beginning, he's telling over the story. You can imagine all of Israel sitting on his knee. It's like, listen, children, I'm up to the next story. There were these big kings one was Sichon, one was Og. Right? And we conquer them. <coughs> and it begins with this verse, and of course, the person will go on to say some very painful things about that occupation, that conquering. And so, this is a moment, as, as you all know, called. Um, right? So, you all say that with me? Right? This tragic moment is. Essentially, the art of reinterpreting. So, imagine now that not only are we listening to Moses reinterpreting the Torah, but we are reinterpreting Moses' is reinterpreting Torah. In other words, we're a super commentary on a commentary on the Torah. Right? We're a super commentary. And this is a very deeply troubling story about an occupation, a conquering of a king as the Israelites made their way, and Moses is retelling it to them, and this is how we made our way to where we are today. We conquered all these groups, and here we are standing before the trans- we are trans- we about to enter the land, and here there was this king, Sichon. and God said to me, I have begun to teach you. I have begun to, to get him into your hands. So we're gonna do a little Midrash, the Midrash. We're doing a little commentary, expansion, how we might make this relevant for us in the moment. So, remarkably, Rashi, the great medieval commentator, says something so remarkable and strange. Rashi says that when Moses tells the people, I have begun to give before you, meaning Moses quotes God telling Moses, Behold, I have begun to give these people to you. What does that mean? I have begun to give them to you. Right? So, on one level, it's just, you know, hey, the conquest has begun. But that's a, for the rabbis, God is signaling something else. There's another beginning, and it is the beginning on the terrestrial plane. Rashi quotes the rabbis saying, somehow the war below did not begin below, but it began somewhere else. A A different plane is where the beginning of this war happened. It began in the supernal realms, with some archangel being cast down by God, and that's the beginning of the fall of Sihlon and his empire. That's it. What do you do? What does the third mean to me? What does the third mean? To be? We have a really difficult piece of text about conquest and war in the Torah, and like a difficult piece of text in the Constitution or in a letter or anywhere else, we are required now to interpret it, invent it, and what does it mean? When the beginning of a conquest happens, not on a level that is visible, but on a level that is invisible, that the beginnings, the incipient stages of corrosion, erosion, collapse, are not visible the eye, but it begins somewhere else in some other causal event. What does that mean for you? So I'm gonna I'll offer where I went, and then I'll offer maybe you to go here. Maybe you went somewhere else. But where I went was that in some way the Torah and now through Rashi's expansion. Right, like my first guess was like really, archangels. It's insisted. I hate this text. <laughs> right, that is a text of terror. These feels Like this is like really. I don't want to think about having conquest and we laid siege to the land. We're still laying siege to lands. We came to this country and we laid siege to other people's lands, right? We still have, right? In our own land of Israel, there's an occupation happening. All
1: of this, I'm kind of like,
0: okay, this is. I don't want to read this about me and about. Nothing positive here, there's no juice to squeeze from this, it's just pulp. And then I heard Rashi say, No. There's a little word here, and I'm reading it carefully. Rashi says, God says to Moses, and Moses is rendering, I have begun. What does beginning mean? Beginning doesn't mean like on the clock. Beginning means in some metaphysical realm where there are angels. And I've begun to weaken the king below through the weakening of the angel above, I'm thinking, oh, I don't believe in all that stuff, I don't know if I believe in that stuff. And then I think to myself, isn't that always the case? Isn't always the case that the seeds of destruction are invisible? They begin, right, in some way before it's obvious, before it makes its way into our consciousness, and then if we look carefully, we can see it was there all along, but we didn't look and we didn't see. It was sort of visible, it was hazy, but like democracy dies in the dark. That's you what know, the Washington Post has been saying, it's kind of that phrase, democracy dies in the dark. Right? the beginning stages of the collapse of the civilization are not writ large. They're not like, you know, here we go. It would slide kind of very slowly in. Right? Little things are taken away. Little angels are thrown to the ground that were protected. Angels, all of a sudden, that protection has begun eroding. It's a Supreme Court justice here. It's a lower court justice there. It's like a this, it's a that. And before we know it, here we are The of The collapse of the Temple. El Paso. Dayton, Ohio. in right? the Again,
1: kind of innocuously, who knows?
0: Something is here in this metaphysical fantasy. Some archangel's protective force, right, has been vanquished and now something else is unleashed. So we have the blessing of interpretation, the danger of not. Reinterpreting, and then we have this opportunity. What say you? Yes, Ellen. Loud and strong.
2: Loud and strong. Those people in those lands didn't know me and didn't believe in me. They had a lot of gods, false gods, but my truth is starting to make inroads. A little bit at a time. <laughs> it's the beginning of belief in monotheism. So you're reading out, so you're saying, this is a
0: story about monotheism, right? And it it's a story about belief in a true God or one God or whatever like And here we are making heroes. Okay. Anybody else? Linda. i um, please. There's invoking that in the worldview of Kabbalah, which is Jewish mysticism, that there is that everything begins in an unseen world, in a kind of chain of being, right? The invisible or the unseen, and then it ultimately becomes made manifest. And so it
1: shouldn't surprise us, of course, if that's the case here as well, that both creation and destruction begin in places that are not visible to the eye. Right? And so what would be the lesson here for us? That'd be the question for us. Yes. Well you know, can there be creation without destruction? Can there be birth
2: without pain? Like what is the secondary pain for the game that leads the primary pain? And when we take something and destroy something else. So when we take something
0: and destroy something else, they come together, there's always this you're keeping the birth without Death, but you know, creation without destruction. And so here, so you're playing with that I'm here. Just playing, with that playing with that idea. If you're if you're going to go in and start this dream, you're gonna you're gonna take mission,
2: You're going to settle in. You're going to. But this is a process.
0: So, so there having a moment of discussion over the last years. Do you want to, for a moment, just take that on a tangent? I know there was another hand yeah, it well, up okay. and see that? Yeah, it was, yeah. What? And then they, yeah, yeah. To me, when you say that something, to me when you say that something started in the world above is a shorthand. What you're really saying is everything in this world is reflected in the world
2: above. So that you say that something the world above, to what it means is, what, it means.
1: what are the things that we can do to make change?
2: So, you started with our angel, and, and that was yeah. the fault. So, how is it what we're doing that affected? What the our angel be thrown out of the world above? I'm yeah. that, how did that and How do
0: that? I our own have Because we are the. it's a zero. So, this is where I wanted to say two things to David. So, some, somehow somebody last night thought that I was saying that we should look into the past, we should only move forward. That looking down, I gave a certain last night about fear of heights. And I wasn't saying that we can overcome our fear of heights by refusing, right? It was a different, <laughs> it's a different metaphor. And, you know, I was saying that often we forget that we need heights as well as depths in order to to live a full life and also country, as well as protections, and positive commandments as well as negative things that we should do, as well as the things that we ought not to do. And I was thinking that that message did come across as as purely as I wanted to hear you you're bringing me to another place, which is this text is essentially talking about branches and roots. Right, the notion that in order to to conquer Sichon, we have to go to the root of his source, the root of his power, in order to to to, to uh, deactivate that, to, to weaken that. It has roots also in our own side of spiritual development, like the roots of things. And on a national level, on a social level, like it's not enough just to work with the branches, right? We're having a war with Sichon, but we haven't yet identified what is giving Sichon Sichon's power. Right? The roots of it are important. Right? It's important to actually to attack a problem, to address a problem, to use a less uh, violent image, to address a problem at its roots. Right? To the extent that we don't, right? We, we are not, we're not actually situated to win. that would be a really deep, allegorical way of pulling yourself in the whole story. It's still there, everyone, for all to see. It's full ugliness. And let's hold it there, too, because Right? It's an ugly story. But it's also a story, at least the way that we have read it, is a story of like this teaching, which is you know, the roots of things have given the branches their power. Right? And we must address those issues. Right? The deep structures of, of systemic oppression, systemic issues. Right? That's where the thing has to be, it's both ads, right? But it's about time to deal with the roots. Right, and the second thing that I wanted to say, and then I'll come back to is along the lines of what Robert was lifting up, imagine that you're telling a story to a group of really terrified people who are about to enter the land. It kind of serves a really beautiful function, doesn't it? like right, to give them the strength to go forward. It's like, you know, on some level, you know, they weren't there at that war. And they're saying like, listen, we we've dealt with bigger problems than this one. Like, we've done, we there was even Sichon; he was really big they're all gone. Ooh, it's big. It's like, but well, we we we'll were able to overcome that problem, and that way also Moses has good, like it's a good moment in that sense to tell them these war stories, right? For people that are terrified, we've dealt with bigger
1: moral issues than this one, and we've overcome the dealt with bigger issues. We can do like it's a kind of we can do it moment, which is a separate piece. It. Okay. Well, building on this, the roots are always there. So, but people ignore them. We live our lives, we have our beliefs, and people are going to change. Whatever's going on, we rationalize it, we tolerate it, and nothing changes. And until you reach every point, more and more and more it has to happen. It just can't be it. So, in uh, this way, you know, God has to.
0: Build up the pressure All of that. They see my God, right? right. So we have, so we, we deal with the roots, ground. it doesn't go away. Yeah. Okay. Um,
2: this, this is another hand up on the side? Yeah, you're in the back. You're in. So I'm really struck by the word la reshette. It has like reshoot in there, which is about permission. I'm thinking about like the language of the angels. As like, how do we? Ask for like, there's so much teaching in here about like what is the what is the true root of power? It's in the asking. It's not in the hitting on the stone. It's in the asking for permission or for.
0: So, Miriam just did an amazing thing. She's just like embodied a great Hasidic master from somewhere in the 18th century. <laughs> right? And you didn't see it happen, but it happened. <laughs> I can mean, still see the presence of a Hasidic master that you are in your soul. Basically, Miriam just basically said, Listen, I, I'm hearing a theme here, but it's kind of appearing to be through the resonance of words and letters that are kind of speaking to you. And since, Miriam said, since we're already talking about angels and, the, and this kind of Warfare, power, conversation We also talk about possession of land. And the word in Hebrew to possess land, which means to inherit it, or to take possession of it, really is a means more to receive land. She said, I hear that in that the word reshut, which is permission. And there is in our liturgy a phrase that we didn't, we didn't say this morning, or maybe some of us did, that the angels give each other permission, reshut. Zela they are permission, Like one of the signal features of of the angelic conversation are they invite each other, right? They give each other permission. So Mary just blended all these beautiful themes together and said, I think what's really happening here is that in conversations about power and conquest and conquering, there is a a subtle hint here um, of of a different power, a power that comes not from possession but from permission, right? And that permission, from the word reshut, is is an operative feature of, of this kind of practice, that in you know, a conversation about words and how they're used. And a Moses, who sometimes uses words sternly, and sometimes uses them in um, you know, a much softer tone, there's here another kind of word, which is the word please, or the word permission. The power of asking for permission. Beautiful talk. It's like up there with the tradition. Okay, I'm going to take one more, and I'm going to make a call
1: for the community to come up and take a call to this WM. And that's our verdict for this morning. Yes. Okay, shifting things uh, to more of a quantum perspective. Okay, to a certain extent, everything already happened. The victory, the defeat, the destruction, the uplifting, the hardening, the softening. It's all occurring in real and real phone. And, you know, in other dimensions, internal dimensions, you refer to, no such thing as coming. All these scenarios are posted on the wall. And, to a large extent, going filtering to the lower levels, man sees, man hears what he wants to hear, he sees what he wants to see, he experiences what he expects to experience. So on the lower levels, setting up the Bari, the words, the intentions, the actions, a certain scenario don't go, okay you are <coughs> moving that group in climate space towards a destructive or non-fulfillment level of not achieving the divine promise. Okay, you're setting yourself up to that reality, which already exists. So basically, it's the value, intentions, vision, group dynamic, and quantum entanglement So just so everybody can hear, that's going to get rated for landing here, that they're going to rise up for this song.
0: So, we're been now amazingly, beautifully brought into the world of Miles Bohr and other great quantum uh, metaphysicians, or let's say scientists, who are dealing with, with the quantum field, who spoke about a, 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 a universe that we're multiple, multiple, multi or multiple dimensionality with reality, and that in at least one dimension reality, of all the time, uh, all things that are at Past, present, and future, all equally present as it were, all scenarios and as it were. And that this story is talking about um, the power that we have to co-create as, you know or manifest what is happening in the world through our right, through our voices, through our choices, through our words, right? And that all of these stories, right, are all Holy presence and all their different narratives, which is not unlike what said that it's all one name of God from the beginning to the end, and it just depends on how you splice it. That's what reality we live right? So that kind of notion. So I want to bring this in for a landing here for this first Eliyah. So today is Tisha of Av, the night of Av. Tonight we'll be celebrating, commemorating, I should say, enacting uh, the, the pain of mourning and the pain of loss, the pain of destruction, and the unredeemed world as it appears to us. Um, and so much of how we bring about redemption is connected with how we read stories. And how we read stories is up to us, right? We have interpretive lenses, and it's really important for us to use them appropriately to save the good. And in this particular moment of lifting up this destructive text, there's a reminder for us of the Torah of, um, of the roots of things. And that it's important to go to the root of things and to not be settling with the branches. And I want to lift up all of the Torah that was lifted up here in this, in this space this morning around permission and around the possibility of a different model of power sharing. And I also want to lift up the importance of, uh, of dismantling root systems and root causes, right? Not being stock in uh, only seeing what's before us, but also being attentive to the roots of things. And the last thing I want to offer is with again, which is we have to be very vigilant in recognizing the core principles, without which, like right, although not immediately evident over time, with time itself, without those core principles, will take us down at the safe part of those groups and groups where the problems in the kingdom also, where those things must be identified knowledge and acknowledged that safe If that speaks to you this morning, like Torah this morning is calling you, it might not be, but if it is, I invite you at this moment to be the to come up with the first Ali